I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. We continue today with the theme of the joy of unselfish living. We need to beware when all of the arrows of life point inward. That is a joyless way to live. And it happens so subtly. Times of adversity in particular have a way of causing us to lose perspective. Before the trouble, we were healthy spiritually, balanced with a genuine concern for others' welfare along with our own. And then, and then something happened. Our world was turned upside down. It was followed by hurt and disappointment, anger, maybe jealousy, whatever. And the result was that we turned inward. Self-pity was indulged. And we lost our joy in Jesus Christ. Joy can be lost, but thank God joy can also be regained. 
After all, joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? But the fact is that the Holy Spirit doesn't and can't grow that fruit in heart soil that is packed down and hardened by self-centered living and thinking. How can we experience fresh joy in our lives, even in the face of adversity? Part of the answer to that is that by giving of ourselves unselfishly to others, Christ's joy will be released. Giving of our time, our energy, our influence, our interest to others, and doing so without thought of what we will get in return, will release the joy of Jesus Christ afresh in our lives. We're going to follow basically the same simple outline that we used last week as we look at this second half of the text. Let's go back to the exhortation that the Apostle has given us. It can be summarized in the idea, seek the welfare of others. Consider them before yourself. Include their interests as you look after your own interests. Seek the welfare of others. He develops that in our text by saying that doing so is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience to live this way. It was the way that Jesus lived and he obeyed. It says in verse 8 that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the cross death. What does that mean? It means that our Lord Jesus, in humbling himself and seeking the welfare of sinners, you and me, in doing so, obeyed God. For us to seek the welfare of others is likewise obedience in our lives. It's a matter of obedience. Paul says, you obeyed when I was there, but now I'm sure that you're going to obey even more. You boys and girls are sometimes given a job to do by your parents. And it's one thing to do it while they're there in the room with you. Maybe your parent says, pick up your toys or clean up this room, it's a mess. Now I realize that would be unusual for your room to be a mess, wouldn't it? But once in a while a parent will go overboard and ask you to clean up. Clean up this mess. And while they're in the room, it's easy for you to do that. But let's suppose your parent says to you, clean up the room, and then goes on an errand and leaves the house. Well, that's the real test as to how obedient you are when your parent is gone. Paul writes to these children of his in the faith, and he says, you obeyed when I was there and lived this way. And I'm convinced that even now in my absence you're going to do more. Seeking the welfare of others is a matter of obedience. Paul goes on to say that it's also a matter of evidence. In verse 12 he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he does not say work for your salvation. We cannot work for our salvation. It is given to us freely as a gift from God. 
Our part is but to open our hearts by faith and to receive the gift of God. The Philippians had received salvation from God, but now Paul says, work it out. Work it out. Dwight Pentecost says this has in it the idea of translate. Translating what is known into daily conduct. The fact is that most of us here know more, spiritually speaking, than we live. And so he says, work it out. It's there, it's in you, salvation is within. Now get it worked out to its results in your life. That's a matter of evidence, giving proof that we are genuine Christians. Seeking the welfare of others is living like the one whom we name as Lord, who lived that way. It's a matter of obedience to seek the welfare of others. And it's a matter of evidence proving that we are truly His, that we have salvation. Thirdly, he says, it's a matter of witness that we should so live. It's a matter of witness. Notice how he puts it. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. He says, do all things without griping and criticizing. Now, there are some parameters around that, and we have to think of the first parameter, which is the context. And what Paul is saying is that as you seek the welfare of others in whatever you do, do it without complaining about it. Do it without murmuring and criticizing. There are times when we do things on behalf of others, but man, under our breath, we've got a few things to say regarding this duty. Paul says, whenever you seek the welfare of others, do that without a sense of murmuring under your breath that you've got to do this, or criticizing, or complaining. He says, when you live that kind of a life, it's a testimony. That kind of a life which is submissive and seeks the welfare of others is dynamic in a world like ours. He says, you will stand out like the stars in the night sky. You have to get away from the city to see those stars, don't you? Go up to a lake the Northland somewhere, or even better, go to a farm in Kansas. And there you see the stars laid out in the expanse of the heavens and the Milky Way running through them and the constellations that you can remember. And it's a marvelous sight on a dark night. The apostle says that you live in a dark world. And when you live this way, it will be a witness to that world. You will stand out like illuminaries reflecting the light of God himself. Like the world in that day, ours has a bias against God. And that prejudice against God has produced a warped generation. He describes it here with two words, crooked and depraved. 
The word crooked is scolios. Some of you will pick up in that Greek word the word scoliosis, which is a disease of the spine, causing the spine to unnaturally curve. This is where the word comes from. He says, you live in a generation that is curved unnaturally, that is diseased by sin and bent over, out of shape. And he says it is depraved, it is twisted in its moral condition. We live in a world with twisted values. We live in a time when people will protest to protect the spotted owl, but think nothing of killing babies in a womb. A twisted sense of values in a world that is biased against God. In the midst of that darkness of morality, Paul says, you will shine like lights in God's universe because you will seek the welfare of others and look after their interests. You will live unselfishly and give energy, time, and influence, resources to help them. It's a matter of witness in our world. So giving of ourselves unselfishly and seeking the welfare of others is a matter of obedience, evidence, and witness. And living that way provides meaning and purpose for us ourselves in life and gives to us a joy in living. We've talked about cultural key ministries as a church. This bridges perfectly into what we mean by that. We have a mainstream culture out there that has built walls against the witness of the gospel. And our need as a congregation is to ask God to raise up amongst us people with a vision for certain hopes and hurts of those people in the world. Hopes and hurts that we can practically, in some way of Christ's love, address in meaningful ways. And as we seek those cultural key ministries, we will be able to unlock, to unlock the doors of culture and let the light of the gospel shine in there. It costs to do that. It means we have to give of ourselves to do that. It means it will take time and resources and effort, but it's worth it. That's what he says. Live this way. It's the way Jesus lived. And then he gives us three marvelous examples of others who've lived this way. We had Jesus' example last week to admire and now this week he gives us three additional examples. One of them is Paul himself. He describes his life in verse 17 as a drink offering. Even if I am being poured out, he says, like a drink offering on the sacrificial service <clears throat> coming from your faith. It's helpful to understand what a drink offering is. In the Old Testament, God provided for a libation an offering of wine, which was supplemental and complementary to the main sacrifice. The main sacrifice was put on the altar, and then to augment the meaning of it, 
the worshiper would take wine and pour it by the altar. It was called a drink offering. Paul does a marvelous thing here. <clears throat> he sees the, the, sacrificial, the sacrificial service of the Philippians as the main sacrifice on the altar being offered to God. And he says, I am like a drink offering just on the side being poured out. You see how he defers to the Philippians? He says, you're the main thing. The sacrifice and service that you offer to God, what a wonderful thing. But he says, my life is being poured out like a wine offering on the side of it to augment its meaning to God. And he says, I'm glad about that. He says, don't pity me in prison. He says, you rejoice with me that I have the opportunity to see my life poured out in this way. And remember when Paul was about to die, he wrote to Timothy. And he said to him, I am already being poured out. Again, using the same analogy. He saw his life as being poured out. Can we see our lives that way? Can God give us grace to see our lives as having the greatest possible meaning and being poured out as a sacrifice upon the altar? The second example is that of Timothy. The heart and core of what he says about Timothy begins in verse 20. I have no one else who's a soul brother, he says. No one else who's like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Now, Paul didn't mean that there was absolutely no one else because Epaphroditus and perhaps Luke and Aristarchus and some of his other team members would have been something like Timothy. But it seems that Timothy stood out by himself. And he points to Timothy and he says, I have no one who's really quite like him. And then he says, sadly, in verse 21, everyone looks out for his own interests not those of Jesus Christ. If there were any verse that might be written across the church of Jesus Christ in the latter quarter of the 20th century, it might be verse 21, where so much of the church of our Lord has adopted the thinking of the world. We have become truly worldly in seeking our own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And so how special and refreshing to meet people like many of you who would be more like Timothy than like the others, who are willing to put first the interests of Jesus Christ. And then he points to the example of Epaphroditus, the man who had brought a message of love and a gift of money to Paul in prison from the Philippians. Paul is about to send him home again. He had gotten sick while he was in Rome. They had heard about it. Epaphroditus was upset. But Paul says, I want you to know that he did almost die. And he puts it this way in verse 30. He says, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Paul uses a word there that's filled with a lot of color. Risking his life was a verb that was used originally to play the gambler. It was for high-stakes dice gambling. 
But the word then began to broaden out in its meaning. And it was used of a merchant, for example, who would risk his life on the seas of that day for uh, produce to bring back to sell. For his gain, he would gamble his life or risk his life on the sea. Or it was used of uh, a soldier or an athlete who would enter the arena and risk his life in order to have some temporal gain. Paul picks up that word and applies it to Epaphroditus, and he says, Epaphroditus was willing to lay it all in the line. He held nothing back. He was willing to risk even his life in this world for the work of Christ. What marvelous examples the Apostle brings before us of people who are willing to live for the welfare of others like we are exhorted to live. But why should we live like Paul and see our lives poured out as a drink offering? Why should we live like Timothy and live for the interests of others? Why should we be like Epaphroditus and lay it all on the line? Why should we be like Jesus and submit ourselves even to death for the welfare of others who are undeserving? Well, we come to the explanation of it as we look back at verses 13 and 16. The apostle first tells us how we can do it and then explains why. How can a person really live the way Paul did? How can we live like Jesus did with such an attitude of submission and humility? Well, he explains that we can do it because God is working in us. That's how. He doesn't say that we've got to try hard to live this way and do it in our own strength. He says it is God who is working in you. Both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. And what is his good pleasure? That we should seek the welfare of others. And he says God is energetically working in you, unleashing his power. First changing you so that your will is affected. And you will want to live this way. And then he is enabling you so that the deeds that flow out of your choices will have meaning and eternal fruit. God is at work in your life. How can we possibly live like a Timothy or an Epaphroditus? We can't in ourselves but by surrendering to God, we can know God's work in our midst, in our lives, changing us, making us, building us. And why should we live this way? Paul touches on this when he says what he does in verse 16. He says, in order that... I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for zip, for nothing. Paul has a concern about himself. He says, I want you to follow through and to, to live this way so that when the day of reward comes, the day of Christ, I'll have not lived my life in vain. 
Has that thought ever crossed your mind as a high school young person? That you can live the rest of your life and for it to amount to nothing? Does that create any kind of desire in you to have life be meaningful? So when it comes time to die, you'll be able to say, I have not lived in vain. How do we do that? By seeking the welfare of others? We received a telephone call last Sunday, as we do every other week, from my in-laws. They told us a very sad story. When we administered in uh, that area, there was a couple who had come to our church, had been there, in fact, for many years, whom God had blessed in uh, financial ways. They had been successful in business, and as a result of that, had a lot of money. And uh, they were willing to talk about that. And as life went along, they, like everybody else, gave some to the work of the Lord, but the general pattern of the life was to give a little bit and keep a lot. They had no children. The older they got, the more the arrows began to point inward. And in the last few years, in their old age, this couple has lived in a mansion But they invited no one to come to see them because it was in total disrepair on the inside. They were ashamed of it. Lived rather eccentrically. Two years ago, he bought a big Mercedes and bragged to my father-in-law about his Mercedes and how much money he had in the bank. My father-in-law said, well, what are you doing with it to serve the Lord? Well, the man didn't want to hear anything about that. He really began to live like a Scrooge. He hoarded his wealth, and it became more and more true of him that he didn't have money. Money had him. And as a result of that, he lost the joy of living. He was an angry and bitter old man. who really did not serve the God he professed to know. And with all the arrows pointed inward, and being greatly discouraged and depressed, though he had all of the wealth that a person could want, really, in this world, and could have used that for the glory of God, and invested in the lives of of people in, in ministry. Last Sunday, he put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger and ended his miserable life. Zip. Paul says, when I come to the day of Jesus Christ, I want to note that I have not lived in vain. That I will have reward that Jesus will give me on that day because I have lived for others. I have sought their welfare. Oh, let's live that way. 
Paul says, you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. You can say, holding out the word of life. And it reminds me of a track meet I went to a few weeks ago with my son. We went to watch a friend of ours run from a local college. And while we were waiting for his race, we watched some other relays. And one particular runner got my interest because he was standing near me in his lane. You could see him getting his muscles all loosened up, and yet his mind was focusing more and more on the race that was about to be run. And the gun sounded in another part of the building. You could see the race was started. And the baton was being passed off from runner to runner. And finally, the runner was coming toward him. And he, was, he got into place in his lane, put his hand back, and began to run at just the right moment. And the runner held out the baton, and he dropped it. And it bounced back and forth in the lane, and the runner had to stop and turn around and pick it up and then take off again. And I watched as as this young man, who only seconds before was filled with hope and belief they were going to win the race, I watched as he came around the track to the finish line in last place, dejected and disappointed. The race had been for nothing. Let's not drop the baton. It's been passed on to us. And now we have our race to run. Paul says, if you want to run it so it won't be in vain, then seek the welfare of others as you live. Live like the Lord Jesus lived, looking not for your own interests only, but also for those of others. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed, I wonder how the Spirit of God would apply this to our lives and who it might be He's calling us to minister to, or how it is that He wants us to respond. Oh, we must beware when the arrows of life point inward. Father, teach us to live as we've been exhorted to live in this chapter. Deliver us from the terrible mistake of living for ourselves and seeking only our own interests. Deliver us, I pray, from the worldliness that is about us on every side. And as we live as you've told us to here, may that be an effective witness for Christ in our community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your hymnal with me to hymn 92 as we sing a verse or two of this prayer that recognizes that we are channels of the power of God and vessels of His that He has graciously chosen to use. How I praise Thee, precious Savior, that Thy love laid hold of me. We sung about that earlier in the service. That thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Let's stand together and sing the second verse. Emptied, that thou shouldest fill me. God who is working in you both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. Let's sing verse 3 that talks about that. Witness. Let's bow our heads, please. Jesus.
fill now with thy spirit hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner man may flow. And may we so live that we will be your channels, your drink offerings, your sacrifices, your lights in a dark world. And empower us, I pray, as we go out this week to live just that way. For you are our Lord. And we desire to have your one mind seeking the welfare of others. That we might then fulfill that mission you've called us to. God, may it be so for us individually and us as a church body together. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.